I'm going to show you a paper that I published uh, a couple years back now on the problem of Indigenous parenting in Canada. So you may not know anything about Indigenous people, but you might have seen in the news. Well, this isn't this is me. I wrote this. <laughs> um, but in the news about a year ago, there was a um, some stories in the news that outside of residential schools in Canada, they found unmarked graves allegedly of Indigenous children. I'll go through the history of the residential school system, but just to give you a, a, an overview, um, large portions of Indigenous children were rounded up, taken away from their families, and sent to these residential schools. The purpose of the schools, supposedly, was to give Indigenous children a liberal education so they could become citizens of a liberal democratic country like Canada. This, that is not what happened in practice. They were religious schools run by nuns, and there was enormous amounts of abuse in these schools. They're a horrific story in Canada's history, quite rightly seen as a very dark time. This was followed by something called the 60s Scoop, in which large numbers of Indigenous children were um, taken away from their families by social workers and tend to live with white families. Anyway, so I was really mad when this happened, and I wrote this for RT. So you may not be able to access this article anymore, unfortunately, but it was it's like a stream of consciousness of my anger when I first heard this story about Trudeau crying in this big public photo op for all the sins of the past Canadian government. And I was mad because I was like, you are still doing the same thing. You're just nice about it, so nobody cares. And that's the thesis of this paper. But that history of seeing Indigenous people as other, as weak, as sick, as unable to raise their children still carries on today. It's just been therapeutized. It's just been reconstructed in kindly terms. But it's still going on today. So this uh, presentation explores this ongoing research. Um, still working on this. I'm still very interested in it. And I make... Um, write more about it. It's an ongoing project. I initially presented this uh, in France to um, this chair of her children um, of French government. Um, so I'm. it's ongoing research looking at parenting discourses and in particular in policy texts and in the texts of um, organizations related to Indigenous health. And I'm interested in particular, as I always am, in how emotion plays a role, the construction of kind of disordered emotion and disordered internal world of individuals is increasingly constructed as the center of social problems. That we are increasingly invited to understand social problems in terms of what's going on in people's heads. The source of social problems is between people's ears. That's our cultural vocabulary. We're used to talking about things like that. And so we just go, Oh, this problem. Well, who are the bad people? Let's find the bad people. Oh, you're the bad people. Okay. Make less of you, make you go away, suppress you, whatever, put you in jail. We like that kind of framework. It's easy. It's simple. Social problems are not so simple. It's not as simple as the melodrama of good and evil. Um, so I'm interested in how we construct these melodramas of good and evil, but also how we construct the individual, the, the mind, the soul as the source of social problems. So um, this uh, lecture that I'll give you explores this discursive shift uh, from an emphasis on trauma, which is still central. Trauma is like the buzzword now of therapeutic discourse. It's everywhere and the, it's, expand, it's, its meaning has expanded from very extreme cases, extreme cases 
of horror experienced during the war to the after effects of almost any negative experience. Even those indirect, even those experiences by an ancestor can traumatize you in an intergenerational way. It's an enormous expansion. Like when I was reading about the origins of shell shock and that sort of thing, you know, it's a common thing. Men, usually it was men, would lose heart in, on the battlefield and want to fight anymore. And there would be all sorts of ways of making sense of that. Disordered action of the heart, all, all sorts of different names, shell shock. And then PTSD became the powerful way of making sense of it during the, uh, during the Vietnam War as part of the anti-war movement. So this word trauma has expanded an enormous amount from like, if you read the case histories of what, when people were talking about trauma, it's horrific. You can't imagine people live these lives. And then trauma is now like, your ancestor experienced something in somehow, some way, it's all a little blurry, comes down to you and you're traumatized. So that's very big in indigenous communities and understandings of, of our social problems. That we're, we suffer from intergenerational trauma. The trauma of our ancestors affects us generation after generation. People like that discourse and it has kind of a progressive ring. Ah, yes, atone for the sins of the past. But I'll show you how it's not so good <laughs> in a couple of ways. But there's been this shift toward a focus on strengths and fostering well-being also seems very positive. Happiness, well-being, it's like motherhood and apple pie. How could that possibly be a bad thing? I will show you how it could possibly be a bad thing. Uh, and a strength-based approach, um, because a strength-based approach paradoxically entrenches the problematization of Indigenous parenthood and expands the purview of surveillance to everyone. And indigenous families are enormously subject to surveillance, always being watched. People joke, you cannot, you cannot throw a rock without hitting a social worker on a reserve. My dad says you can't throw a rock now without hitting a therapist <laughs> on a reserve. And we're going to use the concept of glocalization. Glocalization is a portmanteau of the word globalization and localization. Now, how can something both globalize and localize? Well, there is a global discourse, a global way of understanding social problems that increasingly are globalizing, starts in America, all these things start in America, and then they kind of pass around the world through training and so on. They become the truth about humanity and it goes all over the place. And one of these ideas is um, the notion that parents determine the future of children. That's very powerful. In fact, you probably do this yourself. I catch myself doing this. Why do I have this personality quirk? Why do I have this adult problem? What did my parents do? It's a very common thing. Anyway, so this is a global discourse now. The idea that parents are the root of social <clears throat> problems experienced in adulthood, individual and social problems. There's a wonderful book called Parenting Culture Studies. It talks about this whole paradigm, this whole way of under, that um, parenting has become so central to how our culture understands social problems. So that is globalizing. It comes from the United States, but all around the world. And then it's localized. In particular contexts all around the world, it gets translated into indigenous cultural forms. So as I'll show you in this presentation, this idea, which comes from the United States at a very particular time, 1960s, 1970s, 
becomes the truth about how Indigenous people always raise their children. And actually, by raising your children in this way, we are connecting you with your past. It becomes reconceptualized as though it was always this way. And actually, you want this, and it's your culture, and it's the truth of, of human beings and something specific to your culture. So it is localized. And so globalizing discourses don't just go to new places as they are, like come up from the American context as Americans understand their world and then go to China. No, when it goes into the Chinese context, it changes. And people start to use the discourse to understand Chinese culture. Um, so Yang Ji, Chinese sociologist, who I'll reference at the end of the lecture, um, talks about how therapeutic cultures, this, this idea that emotions and so on are central to everything, serious water sound, um, has moved to China, has become very powerful within the Chinese co uh, Communist Party as a way of individualizing social problems, as a way of dividing people up. Because there's this very real fear that um, as things have been changing in China, that people will get mad. They've been promised that they're going to be taken care of. Now they're not being taken care of. And so they might band together and take over factories, which they have done. And so this discourse comes and it says, no, you're actually, you're depressed. You're a very sad individual. <laughs> and there's, and it, oh, I feel so terrible for you. Your individual suffering is very bad. And look, I've got this book by a psychologist with a PhD. And so they, but they will also use the language of traditional Chinese culture when they're doing that, when they're individualizing and psychologizing. So that is globalization, a globalizing idea is translated into local context. And I'll show you how that happens here. Um, so it presents mainstream policies of the settler colonial state as indigenous cultural demands. It's very smart. It's very smart. And it sounds very progressive as well. That um, evil colonial state, it passes itself off as decolonization, but it's very much in the, the colonizing mindset. Uh, and it passes that off as like, this is what you want, you want this. <laughs> and I wanna tell you, it's a cautionary tale. You might wonder, why do I care about indigenous people? Because how colonizer treated the colonized was the same as how they treated the poor at home. So treating the poor at home as unable to raise their children, as mentally somehow disordered and less, of in as incapable of being good liberal citizens. The poor at home were treated that way too, was not just the colonized abroad. And in that sense, the colonized abroad and the poor at home have a lot in common. And maybe they can band together. <laughs> um, so this kind of neocolonial paternalism, this idea of like the colonizer as the benevolent parent is very common to uh, how they understand their own poor and how they understand the colonized subject. Okay, so I'm going to go through that whole argument step by step. Okay, so why was I interested in this particular research? Well, it goes back almost 10 years now, finished my PhD, went back to Canada, uh, and I went to this conference with my aunt. My aunt has been very, my whole family really, has been very involved in, in Indigenous um, organizing for a very, very long time. And my aunt says, oh, we got this conference in Ottawa, so I go. And it's um, the First Nations Information Governance, can't remember what the C stands for now. Um, but anyways, it was this, uh, the conference was about how Indigenous people cannot stand any longer being the subjects of research. Because what happens is like for 
I don't know, 150 years at least. Indigenous people have been studied to death. Uh, but now, anybody who wants to do a master's degree, PhD, that oh, I'll go do it on a reserve. I'll go do my research on a reserve. And just, they become like lab rats, you know, they're in a nice little <laughs> location on the reserve and you go in there, you do a PhD, you collect your data, you, sorry, you collect your data, you do a PhD and you publish it and you get your PhD, you move up in the world, la la la, what did the indigenous people get? Nothing, they're still living in poverty. And what happened to their data? What happened to the information that they gave you? Nobody knows. Was it any use to us? No, no use to us. Or who knows if it had any, might even have done us harm. We don't know. And so the, the whole point was like, we've had enough. And we're gonna come up with these principles of action for how you will gather data, if you will gather data about us, we will have control of that data. Um, and so there was a talk of, of taking back control, of wanting to um, have a say, and what is said about us, what is done to us. And this deep suspicion in the first kind of seminars that framed the conference of outside agencies, which is not unwarranted because of that history that I just told you about and that's still going on today, which is the large scale roundup of indigenous children. And people say like, oh, indigenous people, why are they so afraid of social workers? As you take enormous numbers of kids away, and you're always looking down on us. Of course, we don't like social workers. Not all social workers, I will say. It's a, it's a systematic thing, obviously, and it's also poverty. Um, but yeah, indigenous people don't like, they don't, they're suspicious of outside agencies because historically they have done terrible things. Um, so I was like, yeah, this is great, you know? Yeah, take back control. And then every paper after that was about how to get around this. <laughs> It was like, yeah, indigenous people, they don't want to be studied anymore. They're suspicious of outside agencies. They don't want social workers. They want all these interventions designed to make them eat right and do this and do that and be good subjects. They don't want it. They don't want it anymore. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's good. So how do we get around that? <laughs> because they were so convinced that there's something wrong with the way indigenous people behave, with the way that they eat, with the way that they raise their children. But it was all through like, Indigenous people have problems with diabetes. So it's a health concern, right? Of course, it's also poverty that leads to that situation. But anyway, who cares about poverty? It's a big issue. Ooh, it's a bit difficult. Yes, we all care about poverty, but uh, we need to intervene to make sure people know about healthy eating, just sort of educate people. Um, so it's all through these like very um, kindly agendas, but there was just this deep <laughs> conviction that indigenous parents are doing something wrong. And if we don't intervene, they're gonna infect the next generation. Of course, they do not use that language. I keep, I have to keep underscoring. It's very kindly. It's very like about support and motherhood and the indigenous mothers, the sacred role, sacred, 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 feathers, feathers, feathers. It's all very like in the language of indigenous culture. Um, and I remember I was going to, I went into one presentation where they were like using puppets. They were like, hi, I'm here to teach you how to eat healthy. It's <laughs> nuts. Uh, all trying to like sort of um, get into people's individual lives. And every, almost every presentation was also translating what I understood to be and had been studying for several years at that point, globalizing discourses 
they were all translating it into local forms and saying, no, this is coming from you. So for instance, I watched a presentation uh, on well-being, which I just done a PhD on, right? And I knew where it had come from, came from the United States, this agenda. Uh, long history, <laughs> diverting attention from economic issues and so on. And there was this woman had this presentation where well-being was like uh, an acrostic. <laughs> and she was like, well-being is an indigenous concept. W stands for one of you know, like <laughs> all these indigenous words. So they're using all these sort of indigenous forms and like E is for elders, you know, <laughs> mixing it all in. And I was like, but this didn't come from indigenous people. This agenda came from outside. It came from the States. It's part of the social indicators movement. What? <laughs> and so I thought this was very interesting, the way that people were doing this. They were accomplishing these interventions and these new forms of surveillance through cultural translation and using things they knew people would recognize and get on board with, even as they knew at the same time that people didn't want that, that they wanted material things. They wanted secure jobs and stuff. Instead, they were, they were trying to intervene and, and create new forms of surveillance. Okay, so some evidence of the fact that these discourses, which were being put forward as indigenous cultural vocabularies, had long histories elsewhere. So here's a graph that I made looking at four what I call therapeutic vocabularies. Keywords that refer to the inner mind of human beings that have become bound up with claims making about social problems over time. Self-esteem, happiness, well-being, and mental health. And I looked at four Anglosphere newspapers of record in the US, the UK, uh, Canada, and Australia. If you look at these, so 1980, self-esteem emerges, begins to rise, and then it declines. This is what we call a fad wave. Um, hula hoops follow a similar wave. I'm not sure if anybody's familiar with the self-esteem movement. When I was about 10 years old in 1995, it was the height of the self-esteem movement. And I remember I gave speech. I was very good at giving speeches. That was my thing. <laughs> we had speech competitions. And I picked self-esteem because I knew the adults would love it. <laughs> and I wanted to win. So I picked self-esteem and I gave a speech on self-esteem when I was 10 years old. And I still remember it to this day. I believe that self-esteem is the bottom line of every personal problem that anyone ever has. When you feel good about yourself, you can do anything. <laughs> that, was, that was the self-esteem movement. When you feel good about yourself, all things are possible. It narrates a cultural story that when something happens in your brain, when you fix something in you, insoluble problems dissolve. It's a very powerful cultural story. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that cultural story is told, retold by uh, John P. Hewitt in The Myth of Self-Esteem, published in 1998. So a study of this fact, published in 1998. So this was a very powerful story that if you just raise people's self-esteem, you will fix a variety of social problems. And then happiness. So this is what I studied. Takes off around 2005. I did my PhD in 2008, started in 2008, in 2012. Uh, and it goes down. Another five. And notice, as one falls, the other one comes up. And then we have well-being. As happiness begins to wane, well-being takes off. And then we have well-being and mental health kind of together, but mental health jumps off and 
takes off. And right now we're in the middle of mental health as the explanation for everything. And we may stay here because it is much more expansive than all of the other discourses. But they all tell the same story. Um, they Not the same, not exactly the same, but they tell a story about the internal world of human beings as being central to social problems. And note how they become powerful and popular within Anglosphere cultures, English-speaking countries first, but they spread around the world after that. So when somebody was showing me well-being as an indigenous discourse, I knew they were bullshitting, but that was not true. I knew where it came from, and I knew there were other things. And what's interesting too is that um, for some reason, therapeutic vocabularies like this are very powerful in the indigenous communities, perhaps even more so. Like I'm sure there are some people in this room who have managed to evade these discourses. Like you have, there's some cultural residue of self-esteem. We, although nobody goes, yeah, self-esteem is the bottom line of knife crime. I'm gonna have a self-esteem seminar for school, high schoolers and you're gonna give me millions of pounds from the government and that's gonna fix knife crime. Nobody says that. They might say that we need like well-being support for young people so that they have self-efficacy or something like that. But probably you in this room have some residue, some residual leftover from this movement, which is probably you think that you have to believe in yourself and feel good about yourself to do something, right? It's, it's part of our culture now. It's left behind. I actually think that to be good, you have to have crippling self-doubt, <laughs> which is what I have. Crippling self-doubt. It makes me good. It makes me careful. Because I'm like, God almighty, I could be wrong. Oh, God, I made a mistake. So, but we have this residual idea that no, you have to feel good about yourself before something else can happen. Um, and it's even more powerful in indigenous communities. And there's a very good book that explores this called Therapeutic Nations by Diane Millian. He's an indigenous scholar from the United States. Therapeutic Nations. It's so powerful. And it's interesting that it's very powerful because I claim, and this is part of my book, my new book, this is my new book, but I claim in my, old, in my previous book as well, that the origin of these discourses is in, is in social pathology, in the old ways of understanding issues as coming out of some defect within the human being. And who was subject to eugenics? Who continued to be subject to eugenics until very recently? Indigenous people, the colonized especially. So I find it interesting that they're most subject to these individualizing, therapeutizing discourses. Now, I must say, I do kind of present a very negative vision, obviously, of these things. At the same time, I do think there are positive aspects, like the discourse of trauma, while I think it is um, pathologizing, it, it, it constructs Indigenous people as by their very nature sick. I think it's also, it can be used in helpful ways where people kind of think, well, it's not my fault that I have these issues. It's because of this thing that happened. And therefore it allows people to kind of uh, not blame themselves for individual, uh, for the problems that they face. So just that little caveat there that it's not all bad, but I, um, I, because I'm sort of overcorrecting and going very negative because they seem so positive. Okay, trauma. You think, oh, this is like scientific. <laughs> Or this is just specific to ind indigenous people, you might say, right? Because indigenous people went through colonization, went through these horrible experiences with uh, residential schools and so on. But trauma, if you look at Google Ngram, that takes off as a discourse in the 60s. 
Um, so, and it's not specific to indigenous people. Trauma has been an expanding concept everywhere. So again, people say, oh, well, indigenous people, you're traumatized, you're special, you are traumatized. Trauma is an important thing for us that considering the indigenous concept, context. But trauma is, a, is an idiom that everybody is using to understand a huge range of social problems. So it's not specific to indigenous people, but it was being portrayed as though it was. These are just very specific things. And this is just the correct way to understand problems. We just need to intervene and give you back your culture and sort of like deal, therapeutize and deal with your trauma. And I was like, yeah, no, this is coming from somewhere else. This isn't coming from us. Okay, so I'm gonna give you a little bit of a history lesson to put this all into context. Why are we traumatized? Why, what's all this talk of us being traumatized? Um, so you have to understand a little bit of the historical context. You have increasing contact between um, indigenous people and Europeans from about the 15th century onward. Actually, contact goes back even further than that. It goes back to the 12th century when the Vikings came over to North America and landed in Newfoundland and they traded with them and stuff like that. 400 years, a lot of stuff happened. And when uh, you know, we had the birth of capitalism and so on, uh, the uh, Renaissance, and then later on you have the Enlightenment. Um, and so, um, Europeans then met with indigenous people and they had a reason to try to see them as something different and lesser. And so, but at least early on, particularly in Canada, there were a lot of treaties and alliances between the indigenous people and Europe. So um, part of most of Canada is English speaking because those areas signed treaties with the British. And we have one province that's French speaking, Quebec, because they signed treaties with the French. But there were, uh, or like did dealings, I'm not sure if the exact correct language would be, but uh, the indigenous people also signed treaties with the crown. And that's the basis of a lot of our rights today in Canada. So um, I mentioned before that I got a payout <laughs> once and I bought my house on the hill there. Uh, and that is because my people signed a treaty. They were smart. They were like, all right, you're taking over everything, but we want a little, little piece. And we want this bit here where we've been for a long time. Um, but my family in particular had been nomadic and we were one of the last people to settle down. So my grandmother still roamed around when she was a kid. Like they didn't have houses, they didn't stay in one place. She called them journeys. We're going on a journey. And she had no sense of like institutions or like geographical places with boundaries. She'd just come to my school one day and be like, we're going on a journey. And I'd be like, okay, <laughs> take me out of school. Get in the garden. She loved cars and snowmobiles and this sort of thing because you could go further and faster. So people are like, oh, indigenous people, it's all about your culture and traditional ways of doing things. Here, here's a spoon to plow your field. Like, no, indigenous people loved technology because they could do things easier and better. Like a car enabled a journey into the United States for no reason. <laughs> go see my uncle who wasn't home when we got there and then we turned around and came back. But it was the journey that mattered. It was the journey that mattered. Anyways. So people would, were roaming around, um, they were nomadic, but they signed these treaties that put them on reserves, specific locations and plots that were very precisely measured out. And over time, the, the boundaries began to erode and the settler state began to kind of close in and we lost a lot of what ha we had signed for. And so we fought back for a really long time on the basis of those treaties. So in Canada, we have some rights because this process of segregation, separation, um, 
and putting people on reserves, we, although it was bad, we did sign treaties that are the basis now of, of certain rights. But the basis that they didn't intend for that to carry on for too long. They thought, okay, we're gonna, uh, at, at first they kind of thought, well, all right, we'll, we'll intermarry. You know, that was the thing in the 17th century, 18th century, uh, 19th century to a certain extent. We'll intermarry and over time, our differences will be forgotten. And in fact, if you go through, I, I, I can't help myself talking so much about this and giving too much detail, but if you go through the like history of Northern Ontario, for instance, people or like um, the rivers that go through Canada, people or um, tell, explorers tell stories of indigenous people with blue eyes walking around because there was so much intermarriage that was happening. Um, yes, okay, the colonizers might have seen indigenous people as something less and something lower, but the workers didn't necessarily. So there was a ton of intermixing between French workers that had come over from France, English workers that had come over from France. I have blue eyes, even though my dad is an indigenous, because there's so much mixing over a long period of time um, that, you know, there's in the 1800s, there was French people that came and intermarried and somebody carried off, you know, <laughs> Uh, and they were like uh, colonies that they tried to set up, but the winters were so harsh and the, the, the Europeans didn't know how to live, right? So they were like, okay, we set up a colony and then the leaders would go back to Europe. They come back a year later and everybody's gone. And there are all these stories about like, oh, the horrible things that must have happened. Indigenous people probably slaughtered and ate them and all sorts of things. And then you'd see like blue-eyed Indians walking around because they just intermarried and mixed together. <laughs> And that's what happened. So there's a huge period of kind of intermixing. Some people thought, let's just put them on islands so they can die in peace. That's the most kind of um, humane thing to do. Don't bother educating them. It's just a waste of, of time and money. Um, and then, uh, so that was the idea. Segregation. Segregate onto these treaties. And as I told you, onto these treaties, onto these reserves. And as I've said, this has an ambivalent history. Yes, we lost all of our lands, but it's the basis of our rights now at least the tiny rights that we have. But then over some time, assimilation becomes a formal policy. Assimilation was kind of just what was happening before people were intermarrying. Then you had segregation, put people on reserves. And then assimilation becomes a formal policy in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, and this was basically, okay, we need to do something specifically to assimilate indigenous people into the broader population because they're not dying out. And so we're going to need them to be citizens of this country. We're going to need them to have liberal behaviors. We're going to need them to learn how to have a better life in the dominant Anglo-Saxon society. We need to give them the skills, the ideas, and so on to uh, live in this society. And the most notorious policies, the most horrific policies come out of this agenda, the assimilation agenda. So what they did was they forcibly removed children to be raised in residential schools away because um, indigenous people tend to live far from urban centers and so on. <clears throat> so they forcibly raised the children, uh, took the children, took them to these residential schools and homes of white people in mainstream society. And one of the founding beliefs, founding reasons for this was what I argue is an enduring belief of the inability of the indigenous mother to raise the good liberal citizen. Indigenous mothers were constructed as highly sexualized, unable to control appetites for sex, food, whatever. <clears throat> and they were not good mothers for this reason. And so the children had to be taken away from them 
and raised in, in uh, a liberal society in these schools. My, uh, my grandmother tells a story. Now, these are apocryphal tales. I don't know how true they are, but she told the story anyway that when they came to take the children for residential school, they were still living in the bush. <laughs> the bush. Um, and uh, they hid. They hid. Um, and the older children, you, know, you had lots of kids in those days. My dad's one of 10. Um, and there were lots of kids in, in my grandmother's family. At times, lots of them died, obviously, in, in infancy. Um, but there were lots and lots of kids. <clears throat> and the older kids could be quiet, so they hid. But the younger kids were not able to be quiet, and so they got caught and taken away. So my grandmother didn't go to residential school. The younger ones did. And she said when they came back, they were brain damaged. That was the word that she used. Her native language was Ojibwe. She had to learn English. So she said weird things sometimes. Um, like she would use metaphors and stuff and she would use stuff that she had learned from broader culture, but she used the word brain damage. There was something wrong with them. They were different when they came back. One of them murdered somebody is still in jail. <laughs> uh, like huge problems that came from this. Um, but the, and, and the, there's a humongous divide between the older children who were raised in the traditional way and the younger ones who went to the schools to be good liberal citizens. They were horribly, horribly abused. Um, so children were placed in these residential schools that were funded by the Canadian government and operated by churches. <clears throat> and the schools were ostensibly established to promote education, but children were required to unlearn languages to promote assimilation. I think my grandmother is probably one of the last, maybe part of the last generation, whose first native language was Ojibwe. That was her language. Now, you know, my dad didn't, he, she didn't teach it to my dad or her kids because you just didn't do that. That was like bad. Your language was bad. And she had all sorts of really confused ideas. Like on the one hand, she like would uh, embrace her culture and love it. And the other hand, she would talk about like, that's the devil. It's the devil. Everything's the devil because of this like Catholic education that she had. So it was like you had this ambivalent relationship with your own culture. You recognize it as a connection to your people, but also you've been told over and over and over again that you were the devil. <laughs> there was a devil inside of you, and it had to be rooted out. Um, so they would, were required to unlearn their languages. There are lots of films about this sort of thing um, that you can watch. Uh, but it was just, just absolutely horrific. A lot of children tried to escape. And uh, my I'm, my reserve continues to post some like documents from the archives on this. And there's like a letter that was sent home to families. It's so disgusting. It makes me so mad where it was like, um, we are allowing your children to come home for Christmas. This is a privilege. In order to make use of this privilege, you must understand and do the following things. You must not like big capital letters do this. The children must be da da da. You must pay this amount. They were like, it's a privilege to see your children just once. Horrible. Children tried to escape. They tried to walk home to their families. It's like the perfect example of Goffman's total institution. You know, you come in, you're de-loused. You, you lose your indigenous, they lost their indigenous names. They lost their indigenous cultures. And they were forced to kind of live within the institution and forget everything about who they were. Over 150,000 children were forcibly removed. And the last school was closed in 1996. 1996 is still going on. And like the people think, oh, this is the battle of past. But they were sterilizing Indigenous women until 2017. Allegedly, there's a court case about it. This is still going on. And I can dare, I want to do a study of this because I find it so interesting. Like there was a horrible, horrible video that went around on the internet a while back. Oh, awful. This Indigenous woman was complaining. She was like, I am sick. There's something horribly wrong with me. And then and she and the nurses were insulting her. 
and she recorded it on her phone and they were like you slut you whore you oh you you all you're good for is sex isn't that right that's all you're good for you're gonna have more kids they're awful to her horrible she recorded it before she died in hospital being uh horribly neglected by the nurses sickening absolutely disgusting the treatment of indigenous women but i was surprised by that actually i was surprised by the nakedness of it because usually how it happens is through kindness don't you think it's difficult to have so many children don't you think that we should you know you're here now you're on the operating table this is how it happened in many cases you're on the operating table now uh i've just given you a c-section i'm just going to go ahead and tie your tubes and we're like, no, 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 I, I want to have more kids. Don't you think that's a bad idea? And they would do it without their consent when they're in an extremely vulnerable position open on an operating table. That is often how it happened. So I was surprised at that video because usually it operates through kindness. Now, I will say 150,000 children is nowhere near all Indigenous children. Not all Indigenous children went to residential school. My grandmother never went to residential school. She was actually taught in Ojibwe. Yes, there were nuns who gave her all these crazy ideas and she was like, great to her, was really like constantly and stuff. But she actually, for the most part, was uh, taught by indigenous teachers in her own Ojibwe language. And they gave her an education. And in a small number of schools, residential schools, people apparently did not get the memo that, <laughs> that liberal education was a smokescreen for like assimilation, and they actually gave the kids a decent liberal education in like 2% of the schools. So there's a um, an indigenous musician who was like, I know it's very hard to say this, and I, as I don't know if you know, but residential schools are like all evil in the world projected onto them. Like residential schools are just known as the most horrible thing. And the stories that they tell are probably not true, I don't think. I used to be like, residential school is the worst thing, that no, but I think it's become bigged up so much that it's bigger than what it was. Like the stories that they tell about things that happened there is just too much. It's like, you know, the priests were eating babies. <laughs> it's getting crazy, right? They're horrible places, but people are getting carried away. And it's important to kind of balance this, that not everybody, not every indigenous person experienced this. So when they found in Kamloops, when they found supposedly, we don't know now, it might not even have been true, when they found these unmarked graves all over the Canadian radio, which I still listen to, they were like, all Indigenous people are victims of this. All Indigenous people are traumatized from this. And I was like, hold up, <laughs> hold up. That's not all the children. And a tiny percentage of the schools, they actually did give people a decent education. This musician was like, you know, I know this is really uh, risky for me to say, but I actually got a great education. I learned about art and music. I learned to play the piano. <laughs> um, in some, like leaving the Canadian context, in um, Nigeria, a huge proportion of the population sees the effect of colonization on the education system as positive. And I must say that the only um, successful slave revolt in history was in Haiti. And it was led by the ideals of the French Revolution. So they took, you said, oh, all men are equal. Am I not a man? And they took, they threw that in the face of the French colony. Here, is, here are your ideals. I demand you take them seriously. So I say this because it's important not to kind of go too far and say, 
oh, this colonizing tradition is, is horrible and all Indigenous people are victims of it. They need to go back and rediscover their past in order to be free of it, because that's kind of the narrative. But that's not necessarily the case. Indigenous people are progressive. They live in liberal democratic societies like everybody else. And some people have viewed that the, when it actually happened, a liberal democratic education is a good thing. It's sharing in the common humanity of, of everybody, right? There's this, there was kind of this like kernel of universalism that we shouldn't forget and, and just sort of blame everything on my school. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley for part two.